open seat of wonder. So it's just to make sure that everybody can still hear me. Uh, and so we are here this morning, and if you're joining us for the first time, then it is great for you to be here. Uh, we're, you're actually jumping in into week three of a series that we're doing on 1 Corinthians, and we've called that series Church in the City. And so that's what we're here to talk about. And this is a, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that had began to fracture, it had began to, to fall out with one another. And so Paul had been instrumental in, in that church being established. And so he had the authority to speak words into that church, both words of encouragement, but also words of challenge. And as he looked at the church and he, as he attempted to try to stave off the division that seemed to be coming, there's one thing that Paul wanted to do. And he tried to call them back to the common denominator that united them as a, as a fellowship of believers. And so whatever their background, whatever their education, whatever their social or economic status, there had been one thing that had brought them together. And Paul's argument is if they remember and recall that one thing, then the divisions will fall away. And I don't know whether you can think of a similar circumstance where you've been part of a group of people that has lost its way a little bit and fractions have started to appear. I'm a Man United fan, so I know all too well about a group of people who used to function so well and then lose track of who they are, of what their purpose is, and so divisions start to appear, tragically, devastatingly. And maybe you're familiar with this, maybe I don't know whether it's a case of in work that you've had a, been through a, a time of transition and it's as if there seems to be a bit of a loss of focus and so the thing to do is the bosses get everyone together and you have a team away day where you do team building activities and remember what your purpose is as a group. That's kind of what Paul is trying to do here. And the reason why unity is so important is because division deflects our attention. And we get distracted by the issues upon which we differ and therefore we forget the very reason why we exist. And in a church context, when groups of believers start to focus more about the issues within their church walls, they forget that actually their intention, their purpose is to be a church without walls at all. Dave didn't even pay me to say that. But that is our vision here at Windsor Baptist, that we are a church without walls. And so as Paul tries to bring the, the church in Corinth back to their common denominator, common denominator, what is that? We need to figure out what that is. And in some ways it's simple and in other ways it's incredibly complicated. And we've been thinking about it already this morning. We've just celebrated it. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as one commentator puts it, Paul will take us to the cross, which is the basis of our unity. See, the message of the cross is what had captivated this group of people way back at the start when their church was established. And so Paul is trying to show them that if they reconnect with the cross, with that message, then they will realize that the things that cause division just aren't important anymore. So we need to figure out what does Paul say about this message that this church we're supposed to believe and supposed to be characterized by and how was that then supposed to impact their interaction with the city that they lived in. And remember, as David led us through two weeks ago, there are so many links and so many comparisons that can be made between the church in Corinth and the church here in Belfast. And so yes, this letter is written into a very specific context, but the principles that God gives to the church in Corinth, we can so easily translate to our church here in Belfast. As we seek to learn what it is we believe, what is at our core, and therefore how does that impact the way we interact with our city. 
And so we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. Uh, there are some pew Bibles in front of you. You can look it up there. I'm sure lots of you have mobile phones and things. So if you want to flick to that, and then when you're ready, if you could stand with me for the public reading of God's word, as is our practice here at Windsor. Um, so stand when you have that passage ready. And we're just going to read these 14 verses. Starting at verse 18, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For the message of God is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. You can take your seats. And as we read through those 14 verses, uh, you've probably been able to see there's lots of things that we could take out of that. There's so much crammed into such a short passage of scripture. And so to help guide our thoughts, I just want to think about three things this morning. I want to think about the message that we are called and we can believe. Then I want to think about the responses that we can make to that message. And we'll finish off by thinking about the impact that we can have if we choose to believe it. And so we have to start by thinking about what this message is. We have to think and discern what this message that God is calling the church and that Paul is calling the church in Corinth back to. If this is to characterize the community, if this is to unify them, then we need to be totally clear about what this message was. And Paul alludes to it throughout the passage. So let me simplify it as best as I can. And if, like me, you're familiar with the story of the cross of Jesus Christ, then please let it speak to you this morning like you've never heard it before. The worst thing we can do, and I find this as I prepared, is we become so used to the cross of Christ that it becomes almost mundane. I heaven forbid that that would be the case. So if you've heard this story before, please try to hear it with fresh eyes, with fresh ears. If you've never heard this story before, if you've turned up to church this morning and don't normally come to church, you picked a brilliant morning to be here because you're going to hear what we believe and why. And so let's think about this message that we can believe. Well, the Bible is very clear. It teaches us that God created the world, and when he created the world, it was perfect. Relationships were joyful, and we enjoyed perfect communion with God. In his wisdom, God created people to be free people, and so he gave us the ability to make choices. Now, unfortunately, humanity decided that we would rather have life our own way 
And so we chose to go our own path. We ignored the guidelines of the creator. And in doing so, we chose selfishness over relationship. And like everything in life, that choice had consequences. And because we chose to turn away from God and go our own way, which is what the Bible calls sin, then our perfect, holy, and blameless God couldn't be in the presence of what was imperfect, what was sinful. And so our relationship with him was fractured. There is now a disconnect between a holy, blameless, and faultless God and a sinful humanity. And the blockage in the middle that causes the disconnect is our choices that go against him. It is our sin. But as a result of his love, God couldn't leave that relationship broken. But equally, as a result of his justice, the penalty for our sin had to be paid. And so in his wisdom, the plan that he put into place doesn't make sense to us. But that's kind of the point. And so even though we were responsible for the fracture in that relationship, God took the initiative to restore that relationship. He knew that as sinful beings, we could never make our own way to his sinlessness. And so he knew that the only way to restore that perfect relationship was to deal with the sin in the middle and to deal with the penalty of it. To do that, he sent his sinless son into the world and that he created. He created this world, yet he sent his son into it to show us what a sinless life would look like, but also so that Jesus could become a sacrifice for us. So God's son, Jesus, who had lived this perfect life, was then brutally sacrificed on our behalf so that the penalty for our sin that was holding us back from relationship with God was no longer ours to pay because Jesus paid it for us. Not only that, but to demonstrate his total power, his ultimate authority, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for us. And the bookends to this message are sort of similar. We have choices to make. So in the beginning, we made a choice to turn away from God. That choice is still available for us. By Jesus taking the penalty, we have the choice to make again. Are we going to hear God's plan and accept it? Or are we going to hear God's plan and ignore it? And for those of us who accept it, we then seek to live lives under the Lordship of Christ. And we will live for eternity in the perfection that we were created for. For those who don't accept it, we will not know that perfection. In fact, we will live eternity in separation from the God who created us. This sounds harsh and it pains me to say, but there is no third option. There's accept or there's not. And so perhaps today you need to make your choice. And can I urge you to make sure you know where you stand before God. And with all the love and compassion that I can express, please consider the cross. This representation of perfect love, of perfect sacrifice, of justice, of power, of salvation. Consider the cross. And getting back to Corinthians. There's a couple of things about this message of the cross of Jesus Christ that I think Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to remember and therefore us. And the first one is this, that this is all that matters. This message that you believe is all that counts. See, Paul knew that if the Corinthian church was to remain united and effective as a community of believers, they needed to keep Jesus central. 
deviating from that would then bring breakdown. And there's lots that can distract us as we consider how we do church. There's lots that can distract us, many of which seem very positive and noble things, but there is nothing more important than the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the second thing that I think Paul is trying to remind us is that this message is available for everyone. And so the message that Paul is calling the church back to isn't just for the Christians in that church. It isn't just for people who hit the standard or fit the mold. It's for everyone. And Paul emphasizes this at the end of the section that we were looking at. So if you turn to verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You see, there's nothing about us that earns our place to hear and accept this message. None of us are worthy recipients of it. You don't have to be super clever. You don't have to be really important. You don't have to have everything sorted. You don't have to live a perfect life or never make mistakes before you accept this message of the cross. God didn't wait for us to start getting things right before he decided to act. In fact, in another book that Paul wrote to a church in Rome, he very explicitly states that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This message is for everyone, not just for the few who seem to fit the mold. So this is the message that we can believe. And maybe you're with me so far and this whole thing sounds as great as it should sound. That God stepped into humanity to restore the relationship that had been broken, to give us purpose and hope and a future This message is central to our faith. It is all that matters and it is open to everyone. That's the message that Paul is trying to draw the Corinthians back to. And it's not one that we can afford to let move out of our sights either. But the Corinthian example does show that actually sticking to this message is difficult. And even more than that, as we try to share this message with the city that we live in, it's difficult to share Not everyone responds as we would want them to. And so let's move on to think about the responses that we can make. And as I mentioned earlier, there are only two options to to responding to this message of the cross of Christ, believe or not. But Paul expands a little on those options as he continues his letter. So let's journey with him. Let's start in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You see, we see here that Paul explains that those who don't believe the cross the message seems like total foolishness. And the term foolishness that Paul repeats throughout this passage is translated from the Greek word moriah, which is where we derive our term moron. So this is offensive language. This is strong language. People who don't understand the cross, that's because it seems like foolishness. It seems moronic. It seems contemptible. It seems stupid. And some of us who believe that message might find even that talk offensive. But to be honest, I can see that point of view. Because God's salvation plan doesn't make sense when we look at it from a human perspective. If we were to create a salvation plan for humanity, it wouldn't look anything like the cross. And Paul elaborates on this by delving into our expectations and our perceived ideas as to what a salvation plan should be. And look at verse 22 and 23. Paul explains that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. 
And to help us understand this a little bit, it's maybe important to think about context. That in first century Judaism, they were waiting for a Messiah. The Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah and they had been for centuries. And they were, the, the Messiah that they were waiting for was a very specific type of Messiah. They were clinging to a hope that God would rescue them again, that God would create them to be a nation of power and of might and of influence in the world again. And so the Messiah that they were looking for was one who would come into their world with military power, with political prowess, and overthrow the Roman authorities who were oppressing them. And you can imagine their disbelief then when this Jesus guy turns up. This perceived nobody from a town in the back end of Galilee who had no political aspirations. He had no military power. In fact, it seemed like for most of his life he wandered around the countryside with a band of misfits. And then he was arrested, he was tried, and he was crucified in a way that brought about intense public humiliation. Are you trying to say that this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Surely not. It looks like to all the world we're waiting for a Messiah to come and to overthrow the powers that be. But this Jesus guy has just been overthrown. Jesus was defeated when you look at it from an earthly point of view. And so for the Jews, awaiting a powerful Messiah, Jesus was a stumbling block. He was a non-starter. And you can see how that view can still exist today. We struggle to comprehend the reality that Jesus came into our world as a servant. He came to be a sacrifice. That's totally counterintuitive to our idea of what it means to demonstrate power what it means to demonstrate authority, what it means to demonstrate salvation. A servant who is a sacrifice. And what about the second group that Paul mentions, the Greeks, who valued wisdom and intellect more than nearly anything else? Well, it's easy to see, as I've mentioned, that, that God's salvation plan doesn't seem to make sense from a human perspective. Not only because of who Jesus was, but actually, it was humanity who, who fractured the relationship between us and God. It was humanity who made the choice. So why then would God take the initiative? Why would God pay the price? How can God display perfect love and perfect justice at the same time? Surely it's one or the other. How can this plan of salvation even leave me with nothing to do other than purely accept it? Surely there's something I need to do to earn that. That's what human wisdom would say. But that is not what the cross of Christ says. The cross of Christ says that God has done it all. That this message is open and this offer is open to anyone. We can't do anything to earn it. And to accept it, all we need to do is to humble ourselves before it. And accept the gift that's being offered. And for some of us here, whether you're a Christian already or not, we struggle to get our heads around this. In a world that's full of terms and conditions and small print, we struggle to see that all we need to do to accept salvation is that, accept it. But surely there's more, surely there's a catch, surely there's something. No, there's nothing else. It is purely accept the offer that is on the table. And that is grace. And grace is free for you because the price has been paid. And one commentator really helpfully puts it that this free offer of grace, it offends our pride. 
It offends our pride because we want to know that we're good enough to achieve that. We want to know that we've done all that we can to do our bit. But that's not the case with the cross of Christ. You are good enough exactly as you are. You are good enough. You don't have to change to be accepted by God. His offer is there for you before you even realize that it's there. And so this is the foolishness of the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. It is we worship a servant, this is a stumbling block, who gives out free grace and that just seems like foolishness. But the other response that we can make to this message, Paul alludes to it in verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, those of us who believe this message, we know that there is no greater demonstration of God's power than the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that there is no greater or wiser plan of salvation than the one that God has put into place. And that does go against our grain, that rubs against our intellect. But as we see from verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, God on a bad day is better than us on Baraka. We can't in any way match up. And so even if we think we have it sorted, God is wiser. If we think we can understand what God is doing, God is more powerful. So yes, this cross does seem like foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God perfectly demonstrated. And so there are the options to the three story, or the three options to the story. We can stumble over it, we can laugh at its foolishness, or we can believe it and recognize the power and the wisdom that it demonstrates. So we've seen the message that we can believe. We've seen the responses that we can make. Let's finish off by thinking about the impact that we can, that we can have if we choose to believe it. And for those of us who do choose to believe this message, then we're seeking to live lives under the lordship of Jesus. And therefore, our lives should embody the message that we claim to believe. And Paul has one major point that seems to run through this whole passage, and that is that if we want to live for Jesus, we need to keep Jesus central. Look at verse 30 and 31 with me. It is because of him that you are in Christ. It is because of him, no other reason that you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, Paul concludes this section by reminding the Corinthians that salvation is all down, totally down to God's plan. And God's salvation message is the only one that can work. See, we didn't come up with the plan and we didn't earn our salvation. Therefore, we have no monopoly on this good news. In fact, as God so freely gives grace to us, that's the model we should use as we give grace to our city. Let's remember that everyone is just as worthy to hear this message as everyone else. And everyone is just as in need to hear this message as everyone else. And so those of us who believe this message and carry it with us, we don't have the authority to be selective about who we share this message with. We can't decide who we should demonstrate grace to and who we should hold it back from because everyone deserves it. So that co-worker who drives you up the wall, 
deserves God's grace. That family, that family member who caused you immeasurable pain deserves God's grace. That friend you've been too nervous to talk to about your faith, they deserve God's grace. And I know that those situations can be difficult. And I'm not saying that I've got it sorted by any means. But could it be that you have been placed into that person's life for the specific purpose of showing them God's grace and telling them this message that we believe? One of the great philosophers of our day, Gary Barlow, has a song on his new album, which is incredibly challenging. It's called God, and in it he says this. If you find God and he gave you hope, would you tell the world or save your soul? If you find God, would you take him home? Would you open the curtains or keep them closed? If you find God, if you find God, would it be your secret? It's challenging, isn't it? And in the bridge, he says, could anyone really be that selfish? Could anyone really be that cruel to keep the king of heaven and earth right next to you? I don't know what led Gary Barlow to write those lyrics, but in some ways it's been the most challenging thing that I have heard this year. If you find God, would you keep him secret? Because surely the way God demonstrates grace to us is the model that we then scream that to the world. Freely, unadulterated grace. And as we hear this message, as we respond to it, and therefore we allow our lives to be shaped by God and by Jesus as we have him in our life as our Lord and our Savior, then our lives are changed by that. And if you want to know how, then come to our evening services as we're now starting this series on the fruit of the spirit which is basically the outworking of the presence of God in our lives and those characteristics are love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control now those characteristics sound positive to me and so if that is the impact that the message has on us then I want to be part of that So where does all of this leave us today? Well, we've heard the message that we can believe that is central to our faith, that God's offer is grace is open to everyone. And we have the choice to respond by believing it and individually and corporately, we then put Jesus at the center of what we do and orientate everything else around him. And that then has to impact us individually and corporately to live in such a way that demonstrates grace to the people around us. And in doing so, Windsor Baptist, in doing so, we will see lives transformed. We will become more united as a body of believers. And we will see grace poured out into this city, bringing with it joy and transformation. That sounds like something that I want to sign up for. And that is the message that Paul is trying to draw us and his Corinthian church back to. Would you pray with me? Father, we